fell off. I kept looking at it. It's working. The green light's on. But if it's down on your feet, you can't pick up your voice very well. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. While you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, let me say this. There are three words that if you remove these three words, any one of them from the fabric of the Scriptures, everything falls apart. Without one of these three words, there is no salvation. There is no home in heaven. There is no sacrificial death on the cross. There is no redemption. There are no sons of God. There are no heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Without these three words, basically the entire fabric of Scripture and certainly the whole salvation plan comes tumbling down once you remove any one of these three words. The first word is this word, love. There is no salvation without the love of God. There is no salvation if God did not so love the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Without love, there can be no home in heaven. Without love, there can be no sons of God. Without love, there can be no heirs of God. There can be no promise of heaven. There can be nothing if it were not for the love of God that He commended toward us when His Son died on an old rugged cross. Now here's the thing. You and I cannot possibly, and we'll talk more about this later in the message, we cannot possibly understand the love of God. We can't wrap our mind around love that is so huge and so significant and so eternal and so fathomless that you and I, with our finite minds, cannot understand the love of God. But we can understand the concept of love. I mean, if you're sitting here this morning and you're beside of your spouse, hopefully you love your spouse. If you're here this morning and your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren are here, you obviously love, we love our children. If you're sitting here this morning, you've got other family members or friends, you would say, well, I certainly love this person or that person. I tell people all the time, I love my wife, I love my daughter, I love my two brothers, I love my sister, and I kind of like my mother-in-law. You know the difference between your mother-in-law and a sea monster? Water. But the fact of the matter is, we cannot understand the love of God, but we can, in fact, understand love. The second word, there is no salvation without this word. There is no person that's ever trusted Christ as their Savior. There's not one person that is going to be in heaven without this word right here. The second word is the word faith. But without faith... It is impossible, impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, there is no home in heaven. Now, it is impossible for the finite mind to understand that a mustard seed of faith can accomplish what Jesus said it would accomplish. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 2. Because of your unbelief. For I say unto you that if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say to this sycamore tree, be thou pl- Plucked up by the root, be thou planted in the midst of the sea, and it should obey your... Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it should obey you, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. It's impossible for us to understand how a mustard seed, a microcosm of faith, can move mountains and pluck up trees by the root. But we can, in fact, understand faith a little bit. As I was watching people come in, and especially after the handshaking and the fellowship time, and you sat back down in your seat, no one got down on their hands and knees and looked underneath the pew to make sure that it was, it was such construction that it would hold up all the people that are sitting in that row. 
You just had faith that the pew was going to hold you up. You got in your car this morning to drive to church. You might have some families do this. You ask the Lord, help us, keep us safe on the road. But probably no one in the room said, Lord, please help this piece of junk car start this morning. You just had faith that the manufacturer made a car that was going to start. And if you drive a Ford, you've got more faith than anybody else in the room. It's impossible to understand the love of God, but we can't understand love. It's impossible to understand mountain-removing and tree-plucking faith, but we can understand faith. But the third word, upon which everything hinges, upon which everything is held up, is this word here, grace. It is impossible for a human being to understand grace. It's impossible for us to understand, certainly, the grace of God. But even we may be gracious, but grace means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means the unmerited love or unmerited favor of God. And we, we can read the definition, but we don't understand it. We love to sing about it, don't we? Some of our favorite songs in the hymnal are about grace. It is said that the Baptist national anthem is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, tolls, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And we may sing it, and it may be our theme song, and it may be our anthem, but we don't understand it. We sing about the wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? But we don't understand it. We sing about grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, but we don't understand it. We read it 167 times in the New Testament, and yet we still don't understand it. See, it's impossible for a finite, sinful human being to understand how a perfect and holy and spotless and guiltless and blameless God can look down from heaven at a sin-sick human being, wash him in the blood of the Lamb, make him an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus, make him the Son of God, promise to come back and get him someday, to dwell in a mansion forever and ever. It's impossible for us to understand how God can do all of that through the vehicle of His amazing grace. There are two problems with grace this morning, though. As I've preached for a number of years, I've had the privilege of preaching in lots of pastors' fellowships. Used to be, when I was first getting started in evangelism, I would preach first, and then some older, older, older fella, I'm talking 80s and 90s, would get up and preach after me. Three of the last four pastors' fellowships in which I preached, I was the second preacher. I don't know what that says about me, but I am pretty sure I don't like it. But I heard some of those older fellows, and please understand, I'm not being critical, but they would make a statement as they got up to preach. You know, I'm glad that the Lord saved this old country preacher. I've heard during testimony times in churches, people stand up, I'm glad the Lord saved this usher, this deacon, or this Sunday school teacher, this evangelist, or this pastor. I'm glad the Lord saved this choir member. I want you to understand something, Christian. Don't miss this. If you get nothing else from this message as a Christian, you get this statement right here. God does not save old country preachers. He doesn't save choir members. He doesn't save ushers. He doesn't save deacons. He doesn't save Sunday school teachers. He does not save evangelists, and he does not save pastors. God always has and always will save one classification of people and one classification of people only. He only saves dirty wretched, wicked, vile, hell-deserving sinners. 
And before we get too high on our high horse, you understand this. It would not have taken one more ounce of the manifold grace of God to save the wretched, sin-sick soul of Osama bin Laden than it took to save me and you. Christians got dressed this morning on their way to Victory Way Baptist Church, put on their coats and their ties. They grabbed their Sunday school lessons. They grabbed their choir music. They grabbed their messages. They got to church. They looked at themselves. Before they left for church, they looked at themselves in the mirror and said, boy, God sure did get lucky when he saved me. Because if we were to sing that song today and sing it truthfully, you and I would sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that saved a pretty good Christian like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a Sunday school teacher like me. Christian, he just saved a room full of wretches. The lost person of the Christian has become comfortable with grace. If we're honest, amazing grace may still be our national anthem as a Christian. If we're honest, it may still be our theme song. But do you know what it's not? It's no longer our lifestyle. I tell Christians all the time, there are two songs that if you can get completely over them in your Christian life, if they just become old hat to you, then you need to hit an altar as soon as you can. The first one is that song that unfortunately we have relegated to a children's song. It was once called the Sunday School Song of America in the late 1800s. But if you can stand there and sing, Jesus loves me, and it does not affect you, then you don't understand what it means that Jesus loves you. If you can get over Jesus loves me, you need to hit an altar. And when you get over amazing grace, when you get over that song, you need to hit an altar as soon as you can. Of course, there's another problem with grace. Not just the Christian being comfortable with it, the Christian no longer being amazed by it. But there's the problem with the lost person sitting here outside of the grace of God. You're in a terrible position. And I'm not going to tell you one thing that I'm going to tell you this morning because I'm mad at you or anything like that. But I'm going to show you what the Bible says about you as a lost person in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me, please. We'll read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says this, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But then you have to love this. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This morning, I preach to you about the amazing grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for faith, and we thank you for grace. Father, this morning, I pray if there's someone here that does not know your son as their personal Savior, that today will be the day that they receive him. And Father, for us as Christians in the auditorium, I pray, Father, that you'll allow us to let the word of God sink into our hearts this morning. That when we're convicted, we should 
fall on our faces. And when we're encouraged, we should rejoice. Father, have your will and way in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice, of all the things that grace does, and it does a lot of things in the Word of God, the first and the most important of all the things that it does, is we would call, number one, the redemption of grace. The redemption of grace. Grace is that vehicle that God uses to purchase us back from the slave market of sin, never to be sold again. I want you to see a few things about the redemption of grace this morning. Number one, I want you to see the life of the sinner. Now, if you're sitting here and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, let me challenge you that these three things are going to describe you. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, these three things describe you. Notice in verse 1, it says that you were quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before someone is saved, in the eyes of Almighty God, get this, they're a corpse. Say, Brother Harper, that doesn't even make any sense. I can see, I can hear, I can taste, I can feel. I, I have all of those, all those uh, senses. I'm a living person. My heart is beating. My lungs are filling with air. Listen, in the eyes of medical science, you may in fact be a living person. But in the eyes of Almighty God, and by the way, His eyes are the only ones that matter, you're a corpse. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The moment you were born, you started to die. You have been a corpse in the eyes of God since you drew your very first breath. Notice, number one, the lost person, the, uh, the, the life of the sinner is one that is dead in his trespasses and sins. Verse 2, though, it says this. You walk according to the course of this world. Watch this, according to the prince and the power of the air. Won't you understand as a lost person this morning, Jesus put it this way in John 8, 44. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. You'll hear people, you get them right to the point of trusting Christ as their personal savior and ask them if they'd like to receive the Lord. And they'll look at you and say, you know, I know what you're saying is right, but you know, if I get saved, I got to start doing all that stuff that the preacher says. And I got to start living by the word of God. And then they'll say this, no one's going to tell me how to live my own, my life. I'm my own man. Listen, you're not your own man. You're of your father, the devil. Now follow me carefully. You came out of the womb doing what the devil told you to do. He has been a puppeteer, and you're the puppet right now. So for the Harper, I don't know that I like that. It's going to get worse before it gets better. No one had to teach you. Think about this for just a second. No one had to teach you to sin. No one had to sit a son down and say, Son, today, Daddy's going to tell you how to be disrespectful to your mother. No parent ever sat their child down and said, Sweetheart, today, Mommy and Daddy are going to teach you how to lie. When my daughter, who's here, was very young, I was teaching in a Christian school and preaching, go, going straight from school many times and going and changing clothes and going to preach a revival somewhere in the area. And so I would not see her at all during the day when she was very little. When she was about four months old, I, would, I, was, the, I was the parent, and I know, I know you're going to want to give me some kind of medal for this, and you wives are going to look at your husbands and roll your eyes, but I was, the, I was the parent that got up with my daughter in the middle of the night when she woke up. Every single time when she was very little, I got up with her in the middle of the night. I loved that. It's about the only time some days that I saw her. And you know this about your children. Babies cry in several different ways. All right, there's that fussy cry when they just aren't getting their way and they're just uncomfortable or something like that. There's the hungry cry. We spot the difference between that. Then there is that one cry that makes every parent respond. It is the scared or frightened or hurt cry. 
It sounds completely differently than every other cry. I'm laying in bed. It's not time for her middle of the night feeding at this point in time. And all of a sudden, I hear that hurt, painful, scared, frightened cry come over the baby monitor. I jumped out of bed. I went running. I got to her door. I, as I swung open her door, expecting to see her in some kind of peril, in some kind of terrible situation, as I opened the door and turned the light on, she sat up in her bed and looked at me and went, If she'd have cried the hungry cry, it wasn't time to eat. If she'd have cried the fussy cry, I might have let her lay there for a minute or two. But she cried the scared cry. And do you know what my precious, sweet, cherubic, little six-month-old daughter had just done? She lied to me. No one taught her how to do that. She just came out walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air. Lost person, that's you. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Or how about what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Or Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. For the scripture hath recorded all under sin. Because you're under sin, you walk according to the course of this world. According to the prince and the power of the air. Number one, we see the life of the sinner. We saw that first, he's dead in his trespasses and sins. That secondly, he's a child of disobedience. But then the third one's the worst one. If someone is angry with us, there's something in us as human beings to try to make peace with someone who's angry with us. We want to find out why they're mad at us. We want to see if we can't solve the problem. Sometimes it makes really good sense to make peace as quickly as possible when you argue with someone. Years ago, I worked for a company called Color Time. I had a boss by the name of Ray Parrish. Ray Parrish was blue-green and red-yellow colorblind. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if he saw everything in black and white or if the colors were all jumbled up. But I know there's two types of colorblindness, blue-green and red-yellow. He was both of those. Ladies would come and bring a, a, a sample of their paint or a piece of their curtains and try to get him to help them match a flooring up. And he was colorblind. It was hilarious most of the time. But I'll never forget, every night before Ray would go to bed, his wife, Lil, would lay out his clothes for him. It was always easy to see when Ray and Lil were fighting. She wouldn't lay his clothes out for him. He'd get dressed on his own. He'd come in looking like something from a clown circus with stripes and plaids and checks that would never go together. We would say, Ray, are you and Lil fighting? And he would always go, how do you guys always know when we're fighting? It made, peace with, it made sense for Ray to make peace with Lil before she laid out his clothes for the next day. It makes sense for you if you had an argument with your wife on the way to church that you make peace with her before she cooks your next meal. But understand this something. Understand this morning. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, as a lost person, somebody is angry with you. It's not your pastor. It's not this evangelist. Someone is angry with you. Notice what it says in verse 3. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The question would be, whose wrath? Well, John chapter 3 tells us that. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Listen to this. But the wrath of God abideth on him. We've tried to make God smaller and less significant, but you can't get away from what Jesus said in John chapter 10 when he said, Fear not them, which after they've killed the body have no more that they can do, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Lost person, I'm here to tell you something. When you drove here this morning, 
in your car, you were abiding in the wrath of God. Next time you have a doctor's appointment, you think about this. You will walk into the doctor's office in the wrath of God. The next time you're in an ambulance, remember this. The wrath of God is abiding on you. Brother Harper, that's scary. Of course it's scary. But there's a fix for it. The fix comes in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, the life of the sinner meets the love of the Savior. It's an amazing thing that he loves us. The Bible tells us in John chapter 15 and verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Romans chapter 8 and verse, uh, verse two, uh, I'm sorry, verse 6 when it says, for scarcely for a righteous man, verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die. It peradventure, the word means maybe, peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. We celebrate people as heroes who are willing to sacrifice their life for their friends, don't we? In South Charleston, West Virginia, it's a suburb of Charleston where my dad lives in Charleston. My, uh, there's a hospital there, Thomas Memorial Hospital. My dad always likes to go to Thomas Memorial Hospital, even though he's one of the few people that has ever walked out of that hospital. It doesn't have the best reputation. My dad insists on driving himself to the hospital most of the time. When he had his first of four heart attacks, he had a fender bender, he felt his chest tighten, his left arm went numb, and he realized he needed to go to the doctor after they finished the police report and everything. He drove himself to Thomas, but before he went there, he realized that it, when he went to the hospital, they weren't going to let him eat for a little while, and he was pretty hungry. So on his way to the hospital to tell them he had a heart attack, he went through the drive through at Wendy's and got a single cheese with everything, supersized, walked into the emergency room eating a hamburger, telling them he, think he thought he just had a heart attack. At first, they didn't take him seriously. Can you imagine that? But as you walk into Thomas Morrow Hospital, on your right side, as you come through the breezeway there, there is a picture, a portrait of a World War II-era Marine soldier wearing his uniform. And at the bottom of it, it says, Sergeant Herbert Thomas. I've seen the picture dozens and dozens of times. It's very eye-catching, and you spend your time looking at that. I'd never actually looked at what was on the opposing wall. One day I was walking out and just happened to glance on the opposing wall. There are three frames there. The center frame was the one that immediately caught my interest. There in that center frame, the first thing I saw was what was on the far right-hand side of that center frame. It was Sergeant Thomas's Purple Heart. On the left side of that frame hangs Sergeant Thomas's Bronze Star, given for heroism in battle. But between the bronze star, which I've seen before, and the purple heart, which I've seen before, hangs Sergeant Thomas's Congressional Medal of Honor. Immediately, I became interested. There are two letters on either side of that frame, in its individual frames. One was from President Harry S. Truman, telling the Thomas family that their son had given his life in the war. The other was from the United States Congress, it included the actual record of him posthumously receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was a platoon leader on an island in the South Pacific. They'd been ordered to take out three different machine gun turrets that the Japanese had. They had taken out the first two, but Sergeant Thomas had lost a few of his men. They decided they would rest a little bit and weaken the, the enemy's position by getting down in their foxhole and launching hand grenades to weaken the enemy's position. Sergeant Thomas pulled the pin in one of his grenades lobbed it into the air, it got caught in the branches of a palm tree, and it fell down live into the foxhole, 
where Sergeant Thomas and his men were. He didn't calculate the cost. He didn't hesitate. He threw his body on the hand grenade. Of course, he was killed instantly, but every one of his men saw the sacrifice that he had made for them. And those devil dogs climbed out of that foxhole and marched straight into the machine gun fire and took the Japanese position, and the Marine Corps never surrendered the position the remainder of World War II. Because this man gave his life for his friend, his men were uh, motivated to action. The Congress awarded him the highest honor awarded to any person that's ever served in the military because this man laid down his life for his friend. Listen to this. Jesus did not lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for the people that were dead in their trespasses and sins, the child of wrath, and the child of disobedience. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lost person, it's your choice this morning. It's either wrath or grace. Judgment or love. It's just that Simple. It is not a hard decision to make. Once you take pride and self-righteousness out of the way, trusting Christ as your personal Savior ought to be the easiest decision any lost person has ever made. The life of the sinner meets the love of the Savior, and it results in living salvation. Notice the next verse. But God, uh, for God, who, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love, worthy loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. You know, everything changes the moment you get saved. Everything. Say, no, Brother Harper, I still have an old nature. I understand. Everything changes when you get saved. Your past changes. You know, your past was once filled with sin. Now your past can be described this way. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Or Isaiah 38 and verse 17. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love for my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sin behind thy back. Your past can be summed up this way. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Your past can be summed up this way. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own namesake and will not remember thy sin. Your past can be summed up this way. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Your past can be summed up this way. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. The fact is, your past changed the instant you got saved. Your present changed. You went from being of your father the devil to fulfilling John 1, 11 and 12. He came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And your future changed. Your future was once destined for a place of punishment, not even prepared for you, but prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, your future can be summed up with these words. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Everything changed 
the moment you trusted Christ. Number one, there's the redemption of grace. When the life of the sinner meets the love of the Savior, it results in living salvation. Number two, there's the repositioning of grace. And you'll notice the next verse. It is past tense. And have raised us up together. Not will raise us up together. And hath raised us up together and seat us together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The fact is, if you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, it's as certain that you're going to heaven as if you were already there because in the eyes of God, you've already been seated in heavenly places. You know why Christians should chafe at the world? Because we shouldn't have anything that's of any value to us here. What do you mean, Brother Harper? Well, what did the disciples say when they came to Jesus? They were so amazed that they could cast out demons. And he said, listen, marvel not that you have power over the demons. He said, but marvel that your names are written in heaven. Our treasures in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves do break through and steal. But rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt nor where thieves do break through and steal. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our, uh, 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 everything that we have, our conversation is in heaven. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything that we should hold dear is already there. We've been repositioned. That's why the old song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'll never forget hearing the story years ago of a man by the name of Iris Stamp Hill. Iris Stamphill was traveling through the hollers of West Virginia, actually, when this story took place. He had a businessman with him. And when Mr. Stamphill stopped, he got out and went to make a visit and left the businessman in the car. As the businessman was sitting there, he noticed, and you'll hear two different versions of this story, but I heard it this way. He noticed a young boy that had a ball in his hand. And the young boy was bouncing the ball up against the wall of his house and catching it. The businessman sat there, remembered when he was a kid and could still run and jump and catch. And so he was thinking fondly of his own childhood. But then he started to notice some things. He noticed that there were broken windows in the house. And you could see right inside the living room where they had big buckets there to catch the rainwater as it came through the roof. He noticed the porch was about to fall apart. And there were actually holes in the walls that you could see inside the house. Finally, he got out of the car, walked up, stood beside the little boy. After a while, the little boy looked at him and said, what is it, mister? He said, son, I want you to know I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry you have to live in a house like this. This house should be condemned. There's holes in the wall, holes in the roof, holes in the windows, and the porch is about to fall apart. I feel sorry you live in a house like this. The little boy smiled and said, mister, you don't understand. Reached out and took him by the hand, led him out behind the house. And as they stood there, he said, mister, do you see that hilltop over yonder? The businessman said, yes. He said, not too long ago, my daddy moved to the other side of that hilltop where he's building a brand new house for me and a brand new house for my mama. And he said, any day now, my daddy's coming back from over on that hilltop to move me and my mama to our brand new house. The businessman went to the car, was sitting there by the time Mr. Stamphill got back, just sitting there weeping as he thought of what the Lord has done for him and told Mr. Stamphill the story. From that story, Mr. Stamphill wrote these words, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. A little silver and a little gold, but in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. Um, and he said, uh, I, I, I don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. But I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city where I have a mansion, a home and a crown. I've got a mansion just over that hilltop. Notice carefully, Christian, we've been repositioned. We're just here for the briefest of glimpses into eternity. Notice number one. 
There's the redemption of grace. Number two, the repositioning of, his, of grace. Number three, before I give you number three, let me ask you a question. Isn't grace wonderful? I think you can say amen better than that. Isn't grace wonderful? All right. I want you to notice this about grace. If, if you have your help, you have it by the grace of God. If you have help going through a time of sickness, you have it by the grace of God. If you have your family, you have them by the grace of God. Everything you and I own, we have by the grace of God. But can I tell you something in pure West Virginia slash North Carolina uh, vernacular, if you will? When it comes to grace, you ain't seen nothing yet. Notice verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Oh, Brother Harper, that's talking about walls of jasper and a gate of pearl and streets, gates of pearl and a street of gold. No, those mysteries have already been revealed unto us. He said in the ages to come, I'm going to show you the riches of my grace. You know why we can't have the riches of his grace? Because we can't handle it yet. Let me illustrate as you're preaching to a congregation, this congregation as well as any other congregation, big church, small church, country church, city church, makes no difference. There are three types of Christians that listen to preaching. Only three. You can put them in all kinds of different categories you want to, but there's only three. The first group is the crier. Now, some of you are like that. When you hear when something starts really blessing your heart, you, you tear up, your nose starts running. I'm a crier. I wish I weren't a crier. I hate that. But when I get really blessed, I mean, liquid comes out of every orifice in my face. It's just terrible. There's also the nodder. Now, the nodder, there are two types of nodders, by the way. And I haven't noticed any of the first type. The first type of nodder is this type. I'm not talking about you. But then the second type is the type that agrees with you. While you're preaching, they do like this. And they'll nod up and down the whole time you're preaching. Understand, there's the second group called the nodder. The third group is the shouter. Now, every preacher likes the shouter. My father always says, saying amen to a preacher is like saying, sick him to a bulldog. In our home church, we had a guy, he's with the Lord now, named George Kirk when we were younger. George Kirk was one of those guys that if they gave an Olympic gold medal for shouting, George Kirk could have won it. He was just that good. We had an evangelist come to our church and he started preaching, not even on heaven, but on the millennial reign of Christ. And as they would say in North Carolina, it got good. As he was preaching, George started shouting. And I started crying. He preached a little bit more, and George shouted some more. And I cried some more. He preached a little bit more, and, 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 uh, and finally it got to the place where George was shouting because I was crying, and I was crying because George was shouting. After the service, George, who was in his 60s, came up to me after the service, and he said, Brother Richard, he said, if this doesn't prove we're going to get a new body when we get to heaven, I don't know what does. And I said, what do you mean, Brother George? He said, because if it got any better than this, I couldn't take it. We can't have the riches of his grace. But we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desire to be clothed upon with the house which is from above. We'll be ready when we get in our new body for the riches of his grace. Until then, we just look forward to it. There's the redemption of his grace, the re uh, repositioning of his grace, the riches of his grace. Number four, quickly, the requirements of his grace. Surely something that is this wonderful would cost a fortune. 
Only the most wealthy could buy it. Only the most powerful politicians could appropriate it for themselves. Surely you would have to work the rest of your life to earn the grace of God. Can I tell you something? If you worked 168 hours a week, every week the rest of your life, and never spent anything on anything else, you would not have accrued enough to buy one drop of the grace of God. Notice what it says. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What God knew you could never afford, he gave you. Truthfully, looking around our world, if you announced to people in many of the religions and said, listen, the way to get to heaven is to run this many miles. The way to get to heaven is to do this many good deeds. The Bible is clear. It has nothing to do with good deeds. As a matter of fact, as a lost person, you don't even have any good deeds. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It doesn't even make common sense for a person that is a sinner to do something so good and so pure and so selfless that it impresses a perfect God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of honesty can ever change the fact that you're a sinner, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As you sit here this morning, let me challenge you with this. I am from, originally, from West Virginia. My dad was in the military, so I grew up all over the United States, so I don't have a West Virginia accent. I use a washcloth. I don't wash anything. But I am a Mountaineer fan through and through. So if I got up and I said, you know what? Yesterday when, uh, uh, when our quarterback, when Will Greer threw four interceptions, that was awesome. You know what I was doing, right? I was lying. Now, if I told you the truth for the next 40 years, 40 years, if every time you asked me a question, anytime I said anything to you, I was 100% honest, even brutally honest. Didn't exaggerate, didn't stretch the truth, never said anything dishonest just to make someone feel better. You know what you could say about me at the end of those 40 years? That Brother Harper, he'll tell you the truth. That Brother Harper, he's an honest man. You know what you couldn't say about me, though? Look here. You couldn't say Brother Harper has never told a lie. Did you get that? 40 years of honesty. I can't make one lie disappear. Lost person, there's no amount of good deeds, no amount of commandments to keep. It's just through the grace of God. So how do I get that, Brother Harper? Well, sometimes the Lord said things once. Sometimes he said them twice. But there's one phrase that he says three different times, in the New, once in the Old Testament and twice in the New Testament. Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, and Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You hear people ask this question, why would a loving God ever send a hurricane? We won't even get into that. Let me ask you a better question. Why would a lost person who could have eternal salvation for free ever say no? It doesn't even add up. Notice, please, today you can go from wrath to grace, and it's instant the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. Notice, lastly, please, not just the, the redemption of his grace, the repositioning of his grace, the riches of his grace, the requirements of his grace, but lastly, please, the results of his grace. Oh, here it comes. Now you're going to tell us that to get saved, we've got to do all these good deeds. No, no, no. But verse 10 does tell the Christian this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He saved us to do good works. It's just that simple. Am I going to pay him back for grace? No, you weren't listening. You can never pay him back for grace. We do good works because we love him. It's the natural response when someone loves us first. We could go on and on about all the good deeds or good works known in the word of God, but for the sake of time, we'll just list one. Telling others how to get to heaven is a good work. Follow me carefully. This is what happens with Christians, and I've heard many of them say this to me over the years. Well, you know, Brother Harper, I get all nervous when I talk to people. I'm afraid I'm going to get the verses out of order. I'm going to mess something up. I'm not going to read the gospel track, excuse me, track right. I'm going to make a mistake along the way. Can I tell you something? You may actually make a mistake. You may get a couple of verses out of order. You may not say all the exact words, the exact way the gospel track says to say them. But can I tell you there's something that you can't mess up? Did you know this? There's something that you can tell a lost person that lost people need to hear that you can never mess up. Do you know what it is? Your own personal testimony. Do you know when the Apostle Paul witnessed to people, he never used the Romans road? Do you know what he told them? He said, I was on the Damascus road, and behold, a bright light. The fact of the matter is, when Paul witnessed, he told his testimony. You know, if you mess your testimony up when you're telling it to someone, they still don't know. Think about this for a second. There are people in Hillsville that need you to tell them, I remember when I used to be a drunk and the Lord saved me. There are people in this room that if you listed the sins you were involved in before you got saved, the things that you did, some of the Christians in this room would drop their jaw. But there are lost people looking around and they don't think there's any hope in the world for them. And what they need is for you to say, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The Apostle Paul turned the world upside down for God. He is the human penman of 13 books of the New Testament, 14 if you ascribe to him the authorship of Hebrews. He planted more churches than anyone that's ever existed and had more converts than they can even be calculated. But do you know if we asked him, Paul, what was the whole core of your ministry? What was your whole course, Paul? He would not, he would not say plant churches. He would not say write scripture. Hey, Brother Harper, how do you know? Because he said it. Acts chapter 20 and verse 26. He says, but none of these things move me. Neither count on my life dear unto myself, so I might finish my course with joy. Listen to this. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Do you know why Paul turned the world upside down? Because he never got over amazing grace. Do you know why we don't turn our world upside down? Because it's just a song. It's not a lifestyle. Do you realize that any church that is filled with people that are amazed at grace will always be filled with people? Any Christian who is still amazed that God saved a sin-sick wretch like you and I were will be a Christian that you cannot get to stop talking about the gospel. But Christian, if we're honest this morning, we've gotten used to it. It's just a song. It's not a lifestyle. We need to go back to the days 
when amazing grace was still amazing. Lost person this morning, the choice is yours. You can walk out of that door here in just a few moments, abiding in the wrath of God. Or you can abide in his grace and his mercy and his love. To me, it seems like the easiest decision ever. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. No one looking around, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. Those that will move to the platform with instruments or to lead music here in a moment, once they get there, they'll find their place and they'll bow their heads and they'll close their eyes. For the next few moments, this invitation is between me and you and God. No one else is looking. Pastor is not looking. No one is looking. Your head's bowed and with your eyes closed. Let me ask you a simple question. If you have to think about this question, you're going to give me a false answer. How many would say this morning, I'm sure. I know that I've trusted Christ as my personal Savior. There's not a doubt in my mind that Jesus is my Savior. Heaven is my home. I know that as well as I know my own name because I've trusted Christ. There was a specific time when I received him as my Savior. If you can say that with that level of certainty, would you slip your hand up, please, all over the auditorium and hold it up for just a moment. Keep it up in the air for just a moment. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Now, you're here this morning and you couldn't raise your hand. Let me tell you, and I, know, I now know who you are. If I wanted to embarrass you, I could do it. I don't want to scare you. But if I wanted to embarrass you, I could have everyone look up and point you out to them. But I will never do that. The invitation's between me and you and God. The point is, though, that you already knew you weren't saved, and so did God. And now so do I. So there's absolutely no reason... Not to be completely honest. The truth be told, if you had to choose right now between heaven or hell, you would choose heaven every time. That's exactly what we're going to ask you to do. How many would say, Brother Harper, I couldn't raise my hand with every head bowed and every eye closed. I couldn't raise my hand. I'm not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. But I would like to know that. Would you slip your hand out right now? I'm the only one looking. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not coming back to get you. I'm not going to drag you out of your seat. I just want you to be honest. I'm not sure if I died today, I'd go to heaven, but I'd like to know that. Would you slip your hand up right now? Hold it up high enough and long enough for me to acknowledge it and then put it back down. All right, Christian, this morning, how many would say, Brother Harper, the Lord convicted me today? Oh, I still think grace is amazing but not as much as I used to. I need to have a good old-fashioned revival of being amazed at grace. If that's you this morning, would you slip your hand up all over the room from the front to the back? Hands are going up all over the place. Thank you. Put your hands up and put them back down. Just a moment, we're going to pray. After we pray, we'll stand. After we stand, I'll say just a word or two, and then I'll give a signal to the pianist, and she'll begin to play. Why don't you, if you raised your hand, step out on the first note. Brother Harper, can I pray about that in my seat? Sure you can. Anything you could pray about at an altar, you can pray about at your seat. But did you also know that anything you can pray about in your seat, you could pray about at an altar? One way shows humility. The other way shows pride. James 4 and verse 6, Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, 
but give her the grace under the humbling. Just a moment when I give a signal to the pianist and she begins to play. Once you step out on the first note, if you step out on the first note, no one can accuse you of following the crowd. If you step out on the first note, you won't give the devil two notes to talk you out of it. Do what the Lord's laid on your heart this morning. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that you'll bless the invitation. In Jesus' name, with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, let's stand all over the auditorium from the front to the back. Everyone please standing, no one looking around. In just a moment, you're going to hear the first note of that piano. Won't you move? If the Lord convicted your heart as you admitted when you raised your hand, why don't you move on that very first note? could be no more appropriate song for this invitation, could there? The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope endures, ensures. He will my strength and portion me as long as life endures. The last verse says, when we've been there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You know that first verse. You don't need your hymnal with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Let's sing together on that first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like How many of you are thankful for God's grace? May we never 
ever, ever get over it. What a great message this morning. And here's what we're going to do real quick. I'm going to ask Miss Kimberly if, you, if she could sneak out and get back there and be with her husband. Uh, I don't know where he went, but <laughs> you'll find him back there somewhere. And, uh, and y'all stop by and, and, and thank him for being here, Miss Kimberly, for being here. And, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the week. How about you? Now, right after this, we do have in the back a, a, a fellowship time, and we have food. Somebody say amen. I saw a bit, at least one big old bowl of banana pudding come in, and so, so uh, uh, leave a little bit for me when I get back there. But here's, here, I'm going to pray for the meal. But before I do that, let me get this straight. Now, y'all got to make sure Miss Lucy's probably already back there getting stuff ready. Y'all know the way she, she's back there working. Now, she's going to be hard. Miss Lucy's tough. She's going to say, no, you can't eat till the pastor comes. The pastor takes a long time to get back there. I'm shaking hands in the back for those who can't stay. Uh, sometimes there's someone who needs to talk to me. Don't listen to her. Go on and eat. Amen. <laughs> Just don't eat all the banana pudding. That's my one rule. Give me a bowl. Amen. <laughs> so you go eat. We'll pray. And, and uh, again, good to see you in the house of the Lord today. What time's tonight? What time's Monday night? Tuesday night? Wednesday night? How many are going to be here? Uh, bunch of Baptists. Amen. Father, we thank you again for what we've heard. We thank you for, again, your amazing grace that saved an old wretch like this preacher, Lord, like this sinner that I am. Father, thank you for, for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me the promise of everlasting life in heaven through your son's death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you for the wonderful gospel message which saves our soul. We'll believe it, Lord, and turn to you. Father, if there is one here today, Lord, I, I wasn't looking, as Brother Harper said. I don't know who didn't raise their hand. Lord, but I know this. I know they're making a poor choice today. Lord, may today, before they leave this place, make the choice of grace. And Lord, I'll be in the back, and I pray that they'd come by. And I sure love to take the Bible. Maybe they have questions and, and just need some answers first. I'd sure love to take as much time as needed, even if it costs me every ounce of banana pudding, Lord, to show them how you, much you love them and that you died for them. You rose again from the dead, and you would save their soul if they'd call upon your name today. Lord, just don't let someone leave, I pray, without that knowledge. Dismiss us now with your blessings. Thank you for the food. Thank you for our dear church family. Thank you for those who prepared it. Bless it now, the time and the food, to the nourishment of our bodies and our great fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.